this is what a church does. This is what a church does. We have struggles and pains. We have joys and sorrows. And we pray for one another. Um, one of the reasons to come to church is uh, to talk to people, to shake hands, to get a hug, to give a hug, to smile at one another, encourage one another. Uh, this is what we do uh, as we meet together. Turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. This morning, as we look at God's Word, I, I want to talk to you about the, the reason Jesus came. The reason Jesus came. He came... Uh, not just to be a, a baby, not just to be a young boy, not even just to be a model man, but he came so that he could save our worthless souls. That he came because we were sinners, part of God's purpose in sending his son, really the main purpose in sending him, was that he would die so that we would be forgiven of our sins. Uh, recently I've been struggling, uh, you know, when you, when you're in small Bible studies, you say this all the time, you say, you come up to something where people sin in, and this is what we say. Well, n- well, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. And I was thinking about how ridiculous that is to say. No, no nobody's perfect. Um, it, it's kind of like y- you thought you were, but you just missed it. You just missed it. I, I'm I'm pretty near perfect. That's what uh, my relatives from Iowa would you know, always say. I'm pretty near, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm 97, 98% on a good day, perfect, but nobody's perfect. And how ridiculous is that to say, you know? Uh, are you 97, 98% perfect? No. There's the the sins that we've committed are are many and vast and in different categories and columns and uh, lots of dashes and telling. You know, there's a lot of them, and the reason the reason Jesus came was to save us, to save us from our sins. We're in a passage right now uh, that talks about life in the church, and this is what happens. So. Jesus came to save us from our sin and the life of sin that we once lived. He wants to save us out of that. He wants to free us from that. We sang about that. He wants to free us. So now, if you've come to know Christ, you're free from that old life. But I want to tell you this, that he didn't come, he didn't come just so you'd be free from your sin and you could do whatever you want. He meant to give you a new life and to change you, change you. And what is happening if you've come to know Christ, that we're in the process of being changed. And even here this morning, I hope and my prayer is that we would be changed this morning. That we would not uh, come week after week and say, I got my fix for the week, you know. Uh, it's like a cup of coffee, and I love coffee. You know, the, the idea of saying, uh, uh, I took a cup, but I'm good now. I've been changed. No, it's like I need the cup tomorrow, too, and the cup the next day. We, the, the point here of the gospel is this, that, that he saves us from our sins, but he also is in the process of changing us into what he wants us to be. 
we uh, are in this passage in uh, Titus chapter 2, and it's a rough one. It's a rough one. I don't know how you've heard it the last few weeks as you've been an older man, and you've gone through, and it's tough when you're an older man because you you want to act like you have it all together and be tough and have all the answers and yet you realize the deficiencies in your own heart and that you haven't arrived and you haven't done what God has called you to do and so there's changes that still need to be made even as an older man as older women the similar thing is true for you that that you dreamed that you were in your 20s and 30s one time and you're no longer in those days. And, and you assumed that when you got to this phase of life that you'd have more together at this time. And yet the reality is there's much to be done. There's much change that the Lord needs to bring about in your life. And then as younger women, as you struggle with the chaos of figuring out what it is that you're supposed to be doing and raising kids and and going through the treadmill of life and wondering how to get it all done, I know you feel the burden and the guilt of not being able to cut it. And then last week, as I've already mentioned, the painful time of talking to young men and there's only one thing and yet the one thing was like putting the finger right on the button of who we need to be is self-control. And as young men have even shared with me in the last week, they go, I I don't know how to do it. Like, I, I, I I don't get it. I need it. I know I need it. Everyone around me knows I need it. And yet I'm not self-controlled, not self-controlled. Today we are going to go through the last two uh, people that Paul addresses in the church. And he says, this is what you need to be. This is who you need to be. This is the change that God wants to make in your life. If you want to stand in honor of God's word, I'd like to read to you chapter 2 of the book of Titus. And this morning we're going to focus on verses 7 through 10. God's word says this, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and in love and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, I urge younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that the opponent may so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to uh, be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled and upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness, 
from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. God, I pray uh, that in our time together this morning, Lord, that you would teach us. um, May my words reflect your compassionate, merciful heart. And yet you, you being our God, may we hear clearly from you and that we, may we take our marching orders from you, being thrilled that you are our God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to remind you uh, that God loves you, that God loves you. And you say, well, how do I know that he loves me? Uh, the simple answer to that is that he sent his son Jesus to die for you. And there's no greater investment or no greater picture of love than for him to give his special son up for you. And so if he loves you, he loves you, he wants what's best for you. And so when you hear these things in God's word, and it's different than you have right now, um, be thrilled. Because God wants to show you the good life for you, what's best for you. This morning, I say that for myself, because as you look at verse 7, he's talked to older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and now who's he talking to? You look at verse 7, and he turns to Titus. Titus, um, some have said that he wasn't really a pastor, but rather an interim pastor, and not just an interim pastor, but a pastor of many churches, or at least multiple churches on Crete. And so Titus went to these different churches, and he was called by God to put them in order, to encourage them, to teach them. And this morning, uh, I don't find myself as great as Titus, but as I consider the charges or what Paul wrote to Titus to be, I realized that this is what God wants me to be as well. And so I have the uncomfortable position of preaching to myself and you listening to me this morning. Um, talk about awkward. Uh, verse 7, verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that the opponent may be put to shame, have nothing evil to, having nothing evil to say about us. Paul turns towards Titus and he says, I, I have something that you need to be about. This is what God has saved you and put you in the church for. And the first thing he says is to show yourself a model of good works. Show yourself a model of good works. I know from uh, being with our fathers here, some of the fathers at Bear Valley Church, I know that that word model is one of the scariest words ever. I know that that causes us to kind of cringe inside. I know it's easier for us as men especially to say, let me tell you how to do it. Let me tell you how to do it. Um, Let me be your consultant. Let me uh, explain to you the ins and the outs of what you should be doing. And then we say, now go do it. Now go do it. Um, The picture here is not that, is it? He says, Titus, 
before I even talk about your teaching, I want you to be a model of good works. I even think that it's connected to the previous passage. Who, who is the previous passage directed to? Younger men. And immediately he goes from talking about younger men to be self-controlled and he points to Titus and he says, go model it, go model it. You know, um, it's interesting for us, we love information. We love information. But one of the toughest things for us to do is to go from the manual to the practice, to having the right answer, to be being able to do it. In sports, there's tons of videos, there's tons of instruction, and I love listening to coaches yell out orders uh, from the dugout or from the sidelines, and, I let, and they're telling them, and the, the kids on the field are, are looking back going, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, it sounds like Charlie Brown's parents, you know, they're, you know, but it's yelling, uh, and, and they're like, I don't get it. Uh, we, we laugh in our household. There was one particular coach that one of my sons had, and he, he'd say this phrase and nobody knew what he was talking about, but he'd say it over and over again during the game. And there's this sense in which we want to bark out orders. We want to talk about what you should be doing. And yet, uh, Paul says to Titus, show him, show him. Don't tell him where you're going to go. Don't tell him what you should be doing. Show them, show them. And how do you show them? You do it yourself and have them follow along. That's scary, isn't it? Because that means you truly have to live the message. You you can't just say, let me teach you what God's word says. It's saying, let me show you what God means. It's not an absentee leader that's willing to stand up and give a good speech. And then when the microphones gets turned off, when the camera's gone, they go do whatever they want. We've seen that in uh, our political system over and over again in the last years, right? There's so many microphones around and there's a sense in which you have people standing up to the microphone and willing to, to talk about strong leadership. And, this, and then they think the microphone is off and they're caught and what they really think. You know what? That's true in our churches as well. That's true of pastors as well. It's true of me. I, I want to I tell you about the way we should live and the, what we should be here. And God says, don't just tell them. In fact, prior to telling them, show them, show them. This is God's message to me and to Titus and any other ones in leadership here this morning that we are to be the example. I want to encourage you, if you're older here today, to be the example. We have an emptiness in our our culture here today, a disconnect. We we, we have an older generation that's willing to talk about the old days and willing to scold the younger of how they are to be. But, But I want to encourage you, if you're older here this morning, show the younger generation how to live. Pull them alongside and say, let's do it together. Let, let me show you how it is to walk with God. We have a church filled with young men and young women who, who really don't feel like they've ever seen it. And, and they need to see it in the lives of those of us who are older. 
not just be told how to do it, not just be mocked for not doing it the right way, but to show, to show by example what it is to do, how it is to walk with God. As Paul says, he says, be a model of good works, but then he also talks about his teaching, his teaching. He uses three things, he talks about three things, and let's go through them. First one is this, he says, Verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 7, model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, integrity. The idea of integrity is purity of motive, purity of motive. Uh, and I, I want to tell you this, and I just want to be honest with you, and this, I hope this isn't false humility in and of itself, but pastors struggle with pride. Pastors, all other pastors, I mean, struggle with pride. That's what I meant to say. Uh, pastors struggle with pride. Uh, when a pastor is preparing to preach, uh, many times what goes through our mind is, how will I look when I say this? How will I look? How will people think of me after uh, I say this? What will they think of me? It's not just what they'll think of me as they study and as they go through it. I go, ooh, that's going to sound really good. And I, I want to sound good. I want, I want people to like me as I preach. And, and this is a struggle for everyone, the, the struggle of pride, the struggle of pride. But it's more public. And, and some of you even here this morning, you're like, I don't get it. Like the idea of standing up and talking in front of a group of people, that'd be the last thing that I'd ever want to do. And yet for pastors, it is not. It's not. They love it. They love it. Knowing that about preachers, Paul says to Titus, I want to tell you something. Make sure your, te- your teaching is filled with integrity. And the idea of this word integrity is that uh, it gets to the heart of what I've just described. It's the idea of purity of motive. Purity of motive. It's the idea that they're doing this without respect to gain anything or to gain popularity or desire respect from people. He says, don't, don't let that be your motive for preaching. Don't, don't let your message be tainted by your desire for the approval of men. Don't, don't let it happen. Because that is not what teaching is about. Do you understand what goes on in a church? I think of our military, and I had a friend who uh, was a helicopter mechanic. That's what he was. And he went through his basic training, and he, he got all certified with everything, and he, he could do his little mechanic stuff. And he said it was kind of a joke to me. He says, I just do my job. You get in the military, and there's a sense of like, yeah, you just do your little job and you try to do it as poorly as you can without getting in trouble. And, you know, he, he said, there's no big deal. And then he realized he had talked to one of the pilots of the helicopters that had crashed. And, and, and he realized he was okay. And he, he, he goes through the whole thing and he says, man, it's super. And he, and he realized, he realized as a mechanic, he says, it's critical that I do my job here. It's not just a paycheck, but, but the idea, the picture here is that people depend on this. This is important. This is important. 
you know what, this morning, I am not important. Uh, as much as I think otherwise, I am not important. But what we're doing here is super important. And I'll tell you why. Is because I don't know what's going to happen to you this week. I don't know what trials you're going to go through this week. I don't know how this is going to play out in your life this week. All I know is this, that you need God's word in you. There's an interaction with your heavenly father that needs to happen right now. And if if there's not a sense of us equipping here at this church for you to handle life and to walk with him, if there's some other motive that comes in here that we would pack the pews out and everyone would think I was great, and uh, if there's some other motive, we will lose focus and you will be unprepared for this world. And so Paul calls to Titus and he says, you know those people in Crete that you're going to go hang out with? You know those people that I've called you to teach, those little churches that are sprinkled out throughout this island? Go, go, and in your teaching to them, make sure it's not mixed with your own desires. May it have the integrity that it's supposed to have. The second word he uses is the word dignity, or maybe a better translation is seriousness. Seriousness. This morning I struggle with this word seriousness. Um, it, it could also it gives the idea of not clowning around, not clowning around uh, with your teaching. Um, there's a, a temptation for pastors as well to just entertain. Uh, some of you are hard to entertain. You watch too much TV, and it's always better on TV than it is uh, here in person. And you go, oh, man, you're, you're boring. You're boring. Um, people have told me that before, okay? Hopefully, not, not my wife very often, but, uh, you know, it's one of those things where uh, people have told me that. Some of you haven't told me, but you've fallen asleep. And you might as well have told me, okay? Um, there's a sense in which... There's this grand temptation to be theatrical, to be grand, and to use this as an entertainment hour, and to become undignified to do so, to, to lack the seriousness of it. But, but I want to ask you the question, why, why should we be serious about this this morning? Why should the teaching of Jesus Christ be serious? Well... Because it is serious. It's super important. You know, there's things that you do every day at your house that's not that big of a deal, right? And you joke about it and it's no big deal. But when it, it has to do with the well-being of your family, there's a sense of like, well, quit clowning around, right? This is super important. Uh, do, do you guys want a really entertaining and funny heart surgeon? No, you don't care if he's got a personality. You don't care if he's got a bedside manner. All you care about is if he can do skilled surgery. Why? Because it's important. It's important. You know, maybe the one who cuts your hair, they can be funny, right? But not too funny, right? <laughs> they don't want to make you look funny, right? Hey, I did some great things. You're going to love it. Every be a little joke of the party, you know. Um, 
the, the picture here is this. He's talking to Titus and he says, Titus, your teaching is so important. Make sure you're not involved in it. Make sure it's integrity. You have the right motives. Secondly, he says, be serious about it. Don't joke around with it. This is, not, this is not your opportunity to draw people to yourself. This is your opportunity to give them the life of the gospel. So do so with a seriousness. And then the last point he brings when he's referring to his teaching, he says this, I'd be sound in speech. That word sound is once again healthy. He uses it in verse 1. It's the idea of bringing health, bringing health. This is the good stuff that will give you the good life. I want to remind you that uh, I realize there are some things that you've learned that weren't, weren't that important and didn't change your life that much. It's that useless information uh, that, that we all have uh, one, one topic at least that we can talk about useless information. Some of us are, we have a vast knowledge of useless information. But um, what this is, he's saying, I'm teaching you something that will bring health to your life. I think about the life that you had apart from Christ, uh, maybe even the life you're living today. And you feel how it's making you unhealthy. And I'm not just talking about healthy, like you can run a marathon, but, but I, I'm talking about how it's dogging your feet every day. That, that you're struggling with your thoughts and the way you view life and, and this, that, that, that it's not healthy for you. And the picture here is this, that Titus, your teaching should be one to bring people to health in Jesus. That it should be bringing you to that life that John chapter 10 says, well, Jesus came and he, he was talking about the thief, he, the, the other guy, the, the other thieves. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. He says, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the full or to the abundance. He said, that's, what's, that's what we're doing here. That's what your teaching should be doing. There's a clause here that uh, is found throughout the New Testament that helps us to think through why. Why? Um, there's two of them in the passage we're looking at today. In, in verse 8, he says, In sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that... why? What, what's the purpose of this? So that... You look down at it. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. The picture here is this. If you can picture uh, Titus being having taught, having taught, and his teaching is well known... And he has an opponent. And opponents always come, right? There's always critics. Uh, if you don't have any critics today, you're not doing anything, okay? Uh, you're just sitting home. You don't have any critics. And maybe people are even criticizing you just staying home. But anyways, critics are always abounding. Uh, they're common. And so Titus has them. And so Titus, he goes about preaching and teaching. He goes about leadership in the church. And then he's got an opponent. And if you could picture his opponent coming before a judge, coming before a judge. And the, the opponent comes and he says, I want to talk about how Titus is an awful guy. And I want to explain to you. And he, he waxes eloquent for 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes on all the wrongs of who Titus is. And the judge thinks for a moment, he considers the, the accusations, and then he considers who Titus is. And he grabs his gavel, and angrily he says, case dismissed. 
thrown out of court. This is ridiculous. This is no, there's, no, there's no truth to this whatsoever. You have no case. Get out of here. That's what the life of the preacher should be. That's what his message should do. It should repel accusation. It should be ridiculous. It should be ridiculous when one brings up. They have nothing to say. Nothing of substance. This is the life of the preacher, the life of the pastor, the one who is called to shepherd in the Lord's church. The last group he talks about, and, and, and what he's talking about, if you can get this picture, is, so how do we live now? You've come to know Christ. What does he want to change in you? And the last group he talks to is bond servants or servants or slaves. Now, uh, I struggle with this. I don't know if you do too. Pretty much uh, throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible, it talks about slaves. Is slavery good or bad? Bad. Some of you are a little slow on that. Okay? I know it's Sunday and you're, you, you knew it was bad. Good. It was, it was an obvious one. Uh, it's bad, right? The, the problem is it's common, right? In our world today, uh, there's places throughout the world that have slave, slaves and slavery. In fact, some of you feel uh, like at your present situation, you're at least an indentured servant, right? Um, that you are stuck there in some way. And some of you go, oh, no, I could quit any day. Well, why don't you quit today and see how your bills do tomorrow, you know? Um, we, we get that feeling, right? That feeling of being stuck. And so, but we're not slaves. We're not slaves. Um, yet in the New Testament, some have suggested 60, maybe even higher up to 75% of the population were slaves. And so when uh, you address the church, there was a sense of there would be slaves in their midst that they would be coming to worship and that they would have been a part of the congregation. In fact, knowing that most believers, in, at least in biblical times, were the poorer group, it would have been maybe a higher percentage. I don't know. But you get this picture that he addresses what it must be like to be a slave. And it may equate to us, at least in a general principle, to us being workers or having a job. And so... As we look at this, I want to consider uh, where you fall in your relationship to your boss. If you look at uh, verse 9, it says, Bond servants are be to, sub- to be submissive to their own masters in everything. In everything. He commands this. He places it out there and he says, For you who have a job are stuck with a master. He says, you are to be submissive to your master. Boy, this bucks against everything that we think, right? In fact, uh, as we think about our freedom in Christ, we say, you know, we're enslaved to sin, but we've been made free to sin. I'm free. I'm free. And you may be free to sin, but still enslaved to your work, okay? And you're still in that slavery relationship or where you are not free to do whatever you want. Most of us are not. Most of us at our occupation, we are not free to do whatever we want. There's someone saying, do this, do that, do it at this time, do it this way. This is what I want you to do. 
This is what you must do. You think about that and you go, there's a sense in us, especially after we come to Christ, going, I don't need to listen to him. I know God. I have a relationship with him. Do you know I'm a child of the king? <laughs> you almost want to tell your boss that. He barks you around and he says, I'm your boss. He said, you may be my boss, but I am a child of the king. Top that. Okay? You get that feeling inside of you. And, you, and yet you look at Titus chapter 2. And what does it say? You slaves, you slaves, be submissive to your masters in everything. And, uh, that, that everything... Um, He's not pick and choose. He's not pick and choose. Uh, boss, you got Tuesdays and Thursdays. I'll listen to you. And the rest of the days, I'm going to do my own thing, okay? Uh, I'll decide whether I'm going to obey. I'll decide whether I'm going to listen to you today. He says, no, you're to be submissive to your uh, masters and everything. I think that even in this culture, there would have been a sense of highlighting unbelieving masters. You know, sometimes we look at it and we say, well, if, if my boss is a godly man, I'll listen to him. But when he does things that are wrong, I'm not going to listen to him. I'll, I'll decide, you know, I know better than him. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And you get this picture that he's calling us to submission to a boss, not because he's right, but because he's the boss. This has got a very important in that, and we'll get there at the end, okay? So hang in there with me. Um, he goes on to talk about this relationship at work or in, in a slave-master relationship, and this is what he says. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Um, well-pleasing. When you think of well-pleasing in a relationship with a master to a slave... Uh, it's the idea that a slave would be a pleasure to have around. That when the slave would walk in, the master would see him and go, Oh, great, so-and-so's here. I'm excited. I'm thankful that they're here with us. When they show up, it's a better place. You think about this as a relationship uh, at your occupation, at the place where you work, and your relationship to your boss, does he view you in that way? Does she view you in that way? Is there a sense where they're thankful that you are a part of the team? I think it's interesting, too, in our world today, you can't really say a whole lot uh, if someone's worked at your place and someone calls you for a reference. I don't know exactly what it is, but a couple of the questions that you can still ask, I believe you can still ask, is did they work for you? Did they work for you? Uh, from, you know, did they work for you? And they, yes, he worked here. Um, and then one of the other questions, you know, borderlines, would you hire them again? Don't tell me why. Don't tell me why. But would you hire them again? And he says, no way. Thank you very much. You've been very helpful in our hiring process. No way. What does that tell you? That they were not well-pleasing. It was not well-pleasing. It wasn't a sense where they loved having you work there. They loved that. You know what? This is what he's calling believers in Jesus Christ to. He says, I've set you free from your sin. Now, with your freedom, there should be a sense at your work where you're well-pleasing. 
But there, I realize that in our world today, sometimes we look at our positions and our jobs as something that no one can take away from us. That we're stuck here. You know, we realize that in our particular job, they really can't get rid of us. And so we kind of go, what are you going to do about it? What if I'm lazy? Big deal. So you're the boss. What power do you have over me? Write me up. See what happens. The question is, as a believer in Jesus Christ, is not whether your boss is doing a good job. Is, is, is your relationship with him one where he loves having you on the team? They love having you on the team. He says, uh, well-pleasing and not another thing, not argumentative, not argumentative. Um, I'm not saying this is a middle school word right here, present company excluded, not talking about anybody in particular. But that word argumentative is, means not back-talking, not back-talking. It's the picture where your boss says something and he says, hey, go do this. And, and you don't say, why? That's a dumb idea. I have a better way to do that. No, we're not going to do that. It just seems dumb. It's a picture that you're not argumentative. You're not, you're not going like this back and forth, but going, I got it. I'm on it. I'm on it. I understand what you want. I'm, I'm going to go run to do it. This is the picture of a Christian worker, a Christian slave. Next thing he says in verse 10, he says this, not pilfering, good word, um, not, not pilfering, but rather, but showing all good faith, but showing all good faith. The picture here, uh, pilfering is a word of setting aside for yourself. It's the idea of stealing, basically. It's the picture of uh, two for the boss, one for me. Two for the boss, one for me. Two for me, one for the boss. You know, it's that picture of taking. I realize that in, in today in our world, stealing uh, most likely isn't taking paper clips and pencils. It's probably more the idea of stealing time, of wasting time of being someone who is doing everything but your job, whether it be on the Internet or, or wasting time of just saying, you know, I'm having a bad day. Today's a bad day to work, so I'm just not going to work today. Maybe we'll get something going on tomorrow, but maybe not. It's the idea of stealing. He says, not pilfering, but being faithful. The word faith in there. The picture of faithfulness is the idea of working without a babysitter. It's it's doing what you're supposed to be doing without anybody watching. I think of the Old Testament uh, person of Joseph, the one who was sold into slavery, the little brother whose siblings sold him into slavery. Some of you here today were very close to being sold into slavery by your siblings, but they couldn't find anyone who would buy you, you know. And uh, Joseph found a buy, uh, the, uh, Joseph's brother found a buyer, and they shipped him off. And Joseph is the picture of faithfulness. His relationship with God impacted the way he worked. And what happened, he gets in this kind of army guy, Potiphar. He's in his household. And Potiphar realizes, he's just a slave, but Potiphar realizes this is a good guy. He can be trusted. And so he comes up to the highest point in, uh, 
in Potiphar's household. Potiphar didn't concern himself with anything. And Potiphar's wife goes after uh, Joseph. And Joseph says, I am not going get, to get involved with this woman. He gets thrown into prison. Guess what happens in prison? Same thing. Same thing. He's in prison. And they realize that he's a good guy. His relationship with God is, is affecting the way he lives. And so he's in charge of the jail now. He's in charge of prison. And gets out of prison and the same thing happens in Egypt. He's put in charge. It's a picture of faithfulness. You know, if we are doing this right, if we are being and being changed by God, guess what's going to happen? We may not be the best at our job. We may not be skilled, but we will be trustworthy. We'll be trustworthy. We, not, we may not be the one who understands our job best, but when we walk through the door, guess what? The boss is going to be happy to see us because he's well pleased with us. He gives a picture of what it means to be a Christian worker. And here's that clause again, the so, so what or so that. What will this do? Looking down at verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That word adorn is really the, the one that's key to this section. It, it's, it's the idea to make attractive. Make attractive. Now let me ask you a question. Do you want to be attractive people? Some of you are a little slow on that one too this morning. I, I don't know what, what's going on here. Um, attractive people. And the idea of attractive, it's not just outwardly attractive. It's, it's someone that, that you, everyone wants to be like and everyone wants to be with. And there's a sense of that drawing people in, drawing people in. It, it, it's, I was talking to a young lady, uh, used to be a part of our youth group, uh, a long time ago and she's uh, off away at college. And I said, so what are you studying? And she kind of hems and haws and I don't you know. And I said, what, what are you studying? And she says, well, marketing, marketing. And I said, why, why are you all embarrassed about that? And she goes, oh, because it's kind of shifty and they're trying to get you to buy things you don't need and stuff like that. And it's just kind of an ugly world of advertising is what it is. And, and as I think about this, I, I struggle when I hear adorning the gospel, trying to make it attractive. But this is what's different about that, is that that. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the plan of the Father to send the Son, we are the advertisement to that. And people will look to us and they'll say, I want to know the God they serve. It looks good to me. It looks good to me to know him by knowing us or the complete opposite will be true. People will be repulsed. They'll look at us and they'll say, you know, they have a bad attitude. They complain all the time. They they cheat at work or especially a boss look at it and you go, I don't like it when they show up. They're just, they're just not that good of an employee. There should be an attraction to the way we're living that should attract people to the gospel. The picture here is is like a, a, a setting of a, a fine jewel and it, in the setting of a fine jewel, it's not about the setting itself, but it's meant to show off the beauty of the jewel. And I want to tell you, our lives 
are meant to show off the greatness of our God. That's when it's meant to happen. And it's meant to happen at work. It should be happening. Three questions I have for you this morning, and hopefully this will help you consider this message. The first one is this. Could someone be godly by following my life? Could somebody be godless? Could someone figure it out by following my life? If someone came today and they said, I've never read the Bible. I don't know anything about Jesus. I don't know anything about your God. But can I just follow you around? Can I watch and see the way you live? Because I think I can get it if I can just see you. I want to ask you that question this morning. Could someone be godly by following your life, my life? Second question, does my life dismiss accusations or does it invite them? The things that I'm doing, the things, the way that I'm living, is it something that when people bring up accusation, they say, no way, no way, dismisses it? Or am I a constant target because of the way I'm living to real accusations? And the last thing, how does the unbelieving world see our life? Are they attracted to us and what God has done in us? Or are they going, I don't want any part of that. I realize these last weeks have been um, very difficult to go through and very difficult. Even this morning as I think through my own work ethic and what it is to be a pastor and just going, you know, there's some change that needs to happen. I want to tell you this. Um, don't give up on me yet, I, I, or even more importantly than me, about us being able to make progress in this. I don't want to sound like a, a sitcom from my early days. Stay tuned next week. Uh, but that's exactly what I'm going to tell you this morning. This next passage is going to tell us how to do it, how to do it, how change happens in our heart. I know we can change the external, right? We can get new clothes. We can, some of us can get new hairdos or purchase other things to cover our heads and stuff like that. But what we're talking about here this morning is real change that comes from the inside. And that comes from a work of God. And he has a way he goes about doing that. And it's found in the next few verses. Uh, So I look forward to uh, talking about you with them, talking with you about them in the next few weeks. Let's pray and ask God to give us strength to change. God, thank you for the opportunity of being before your word. God, uh, thank you for your salvation that you did at the awful cost of your son. God, I pray that you would give us open hearts that we might know uh, what it is you've said and that we would unreservedly let you change us in the inside. God, I pray for those who are hurting today, struggling. I pray that they would find confidence in the gospel that they would trust in you, that you would walk with them, that they would not be fearful to take the step right in front of them, not knowing what it is, but knowing that you are faithful to them. God, thank you for each one here today. Bless us as we go. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. You are dismissed.